Welcome to the Pasco 10th Ward Podcast. I am your host, Daniel, and I am pleased for y'all to be able to join in. Today, I have a real treat. I have Jaime Morales. He is actually the second counselor in the bishopric. He is an educator and a father, and I will say it was a lot of fun getting to know him and learning from him. So I'm excited for y'all to tune in and hear this episode. Enjoy. All right. Well, I am in the home of the Morales family. Jaime, thank you so much for joining in. Appreciate yeah, it. No problem. So, uh, so um, where are you originally from? Originally from Grandview, Washington. It's about 45 minutes. Are west. you really from Grandview? Really from Grandview. I used to tell a funny story in college when people would say, where's Grandview? I'd ask them, do you know where Mapton is? People would laugh because I like nobody knew where Mapton was. Yeah. But uh, eventually there was one guy in college who said, "Oh yeah, that's where my cousin lives," and I was like shocked. Huh? Because most people don't know. So generally, I just tell them it's halfway between Tri Cities and Yakima, and it then, covers yeah, it. Yeah, covers it. So. Did you you graduate from Grandview High School? Yep. Yeah. Born in uh, born in Sunnyside, which is a neighboring town. Cause yeah. Grandview didn't have a hospital. That's where um, I work is Sunnyside. I know yeah, exactly where that is. Yeah. So. Um, and grew up there, graduated there, actually went back and taught there for the first six years, six and a half years of my career in education. Now, uh, were you born and raised in the church? No, no, I was a convert. All right. I think we're going to start there. <laughs> Where does that start? Um, actually starts back in probably 2001, little, maybe a little before 2001, uh, finished up. Uh, my classes, coursework, went and did my student teaching. And as I was doing my student teaching, I was back in a setting with a lot of people that grew up in in Grandview, going back and student teaching there and then and starting to work there. And people that um, went to church with my grandparents, uh, Catholic church, were like, hey, you, you know, you got to start coming back to church. We need you to be involved in the community now and so forth. Yeah. So I was like, you know, you're right. Now, during my college careers, I spent a lot of time visiting a lot of churches with people because they would just invite me and I'd go see with CM and so mm. forth. And uh, Pretty outgoing. Yeah, and just not not one felt like the right place. Okay. And uh, so I got a job, or I had a summer school job that I was working on in the summer of 2002. And when I was there uh, doing the summer school job, I had this young man and his two sisters working at at my school, that uh, setting that was doing the summer school program. And there was just something unique about this kid. I couldn't put my finger on it. Just always happy, uh, upgoing, upbeat. Um, and so I was talking to him a little about it. And they were members of the church. And I knew the family growing up I actually graduated with one of the sisters from high school. Okay. And several other people. In fact, our former bishop, Justin Christensen, grew up with him oh, from Grandview. So okay. we've known each other since we were in kindergarten. Yeah. And... Um, but just never like had some interaction with people in the church, but nothing constant. And so it happened to be that I was uh, chatting with them a little bit about the church, and and uh, one of the ladies was actually Lisa, my wife, who oh, okay. I was forbade to date. Like they said, nope, you're forbidden, you can't date her. her who sister, said that? Her sister, who I was working with, who was a teacher, said you can't date my sister. You're not touching her. I'm, I was <laughs> like, okay, I agree to that. I'm not gonna. I'll, I respect you as a fellow educator and colleague of mine. I'll, I'll honor that request. And uh, anyway, had the first uh, discussion with her, and it it really touched 
touched me, that experience where she shared it. She was a return missionary. Oh, okay. Um, my sister-in-law, Emily. Now my sister-in-law, I can say that. Yeah. And uh, it just happened to be that um, I started attending church and taking the discussions with the missionaries in the interim. I got asked out by Lisa. So I, I, I never asked her. <laughs> I just said I wouldn't ask her out. So Like, doesn't mean I can't say no yeah, if she yeah, asked me. I was, I was very kind and courteous and, and a gentleman. Okay. Was she so, her younger sister? Or? Yeah, younger. Of or course. The, yeah. The, so Lisa was her younger sister. Emily was the oldest. So very protective. Very protective. Was there any reason why? Or was it just... I don't know. I actually, I don't, I, I never really inquired. I, I don't know if it was just actually to be funny originally or not. It might have just been to be You didn't funny. want to push it around either. <laughs> I was fine. I had, and uh, so had a first discussion, met with the missionaries. Um, interestingly enough, Lisa was going back to school at BYU-Idaho. Mm. And so that trimester she went back or semester she went back got the mindset of trimesters because that's what we run in Pasco School District. That semester she went back to school. I ended up actually going out doing missionary splits two mm. nights a week just to become more in, in knowledgeable in the gospel and that experience of working with them and so forth. And I happened to, I was baptized August of uh, 24th of 2002, started the discussions in July. Uh, really? So, yeah. August? So I was baptized uh november 2002 that's when i was about 12 at the time so i basically skipped primary (laughs) and i went straight into young men that's kind of the way i put it i was i was 22 so i skipped all of it Um, (laughs) and at the time i mean did you consider about serving a mission was that even possible at that time because i don't know what the church sort of expectations was at the time right now it's a different story yeah, it would have been at least a year out because I had that. It was the year window before you could even go to the temple or do right. anything like that. And there was so much that I needed to learn and so much I needed to find out. Yeah. And so in the interim, um, before Lisa left, I we dated through the summer secretly, I guess you could say. I don't think it was secret. Everybody knew Um except people we worked with because they were like, is there a relationship going on there? And our <laughs> boss is like, the fact that you're asking tells me that you don't know anything that's going on. Like it's, yeah. they're keeping it outside of the workplace. Mm. So it was really kind of funny and so forth. But um, just the spirit the family had in general with not only Lisa, but her sister and, and her brother was just like, I knew that's where I needed to be. Yeah. And I had, interestingly enough, I, there were some life choices I made ahead of time probably well before that experience that, you know, people are like, well, did you have an issue or not an issue, but had you had experience, you know, drinking and things like that. And like, that was something in, I call a previous lifetime, like, yeah, but it was more social and I, it wasn't a regular thing. And I cut that almost a year before I was baptized just by choice. Cause I was like, I'm not going to spend my time doing that. Was that, and was that, um, was any kind of church influence a part of that decision-making, or was that even before that? It was before that. I think a lot of it had to do with, um, I had finished up lifestyle at college, I guess you could say. I you lived the college life. The college life, I left college, and I was coming back home to student teach, and it's Grandview. There's not a whole lot to do in Grandview. Um, yes. So I yeah. spend a lot of time just <laughs> hanging out with, 
with my family and my cousins and we just that wasn't what we did so it just worked out that I had already kind of let that part of my life go people said well you must have been a big coffee drinker and I was like well funny enough I stopped doing that even four years before then hmm. I guess it was three years but well what I did just, your what did your family think when they were you know finding out you were taking discussions and you were really interested in joining the church were they were you religious beforehand um I wouldn't say we were religious. Did we go to church? We were the standard family that went to church on Christmas and Easter. Like those are the two days. Like we went right. to Christmas Mass right. and Easter Sunday. Um, as part of just growing up, that's mm -hmm. what we did. And there were different times that we were more active in a church than others. Um, like I said, we grew up in the Catholic setting. My grandparents were very much that way. My parents were that way for a while until they were too busy because they the jobs they had were not your typical nine to five monday to friday jobs they worked seven days a week random shifts so right. sunday was just another work day and it could be that my mom worked in the morning and my dad worked in the afternoon um swing shift or a graveyard shift and how it worked mm -hmm. so just when they got so busy it just church didn't happen regularly in our household hmm. what did they say once they start finding out they were actually supportive. I mean, I think a lot of people were surprised that they were so supportive, but I've always been, you talked about you were turned 12 and you joined the church and you went right into young men, just get primary. I was the kid in school that turned 12 and then I was the oldest kid in school. I was 12 going on, on 32. I was the responsible one. I was the one that made sure everyone got home safe. I was the one who just made sure everyone was taken mm -hmm. care of. And all my friends knew that. My family knew that. Like they were like, oh, okay, I'm the one in high school that spent Friday nights not at football games or basketball games. My parents went because my sister was a cheerleader. I took care of my brother because he's 14 years younger than I. By that point, they kind of have the respect of yeah, being an adult. Like yeah, like I'm an adult. They know what can make the choice. And the same thing with my friends as well. There was a lot of people who were like, oh, how do your friends feel about it? And they had sat down. Like I had two different friends that were really close to mine, took me to lunch at different times, said, hey, we need to talk about this, the choice you're making. And part of it was they knew I don't make irrational decisions like if i'm doing something that means there's a belief to it something that i know is true and that i can you know to the core i know is true and i think that for them was a little bit scary because they were like this isn't you you don't make these type of decisions unless you know hmm. that there's something right about it and that was probably a little scary for them because they were thinking oh you know maybe we need to look at our choices <laughs> they gotta what we do their but lives. you know obviously they were, you know, they were both Catholic and, you know, that was a religion they, they were through and through devoted to and they still are that way this day. And I still talk to them um, on occasion, one more than the other, but we're all respectful of the life that we live. Where, where do you, I'm curious, where, where do you feel like that started from? Because I think even since day one meeting you, there was always a sense of surety whenever you spoke with somebody, whenever we interacted with you, always very pleasant. But there was definitely a sense of of certainty when you spoke, when you when you even in casual or official conversation. Do you feel like you had that all growing up? You know, I don't know. I don't. I don't think so. And I can't say when it happened. And I think it's well. Part of it's probably just who I am and who I strive to be. Physically, I look different than most people. You know, people can sit there and say, "Oh, uh, how do you find out who somebody is, and how do you remember them?" I always didn't want to be remembered as the guy with one hand. Mm -hmm. And so I always made a point that when I interact and engage with people, 
I try to make an impression so they remember me for how I treated them and who I was and how I interacted with them, not how I looked. Yeah. And maybe that's where that stems from. It could be just because I don't ever want that label. Um, yeah. Even though over time and age, I've kind of embraced it and I have a great sense of humor about it. You can ask anyone and they're like, I remember there was a Derek Price who used to be in our ward said, you know, the only person who ever reminds us that you have an hand like that is you. Because, <laughs> you know, just the sense of humor piece of it. Yeah. But that's just a little bit of who I am, I guess. Well, and I get that. I, do you feel like growing? And so I'm assuming you were born yep. like this? Born like this. How, do you have a story behind that? Um, they actually don't know how it happened. I remember going to see different doctors um, probably when I was about 10 or about 11 or 12. My mom had a miscarriage uh, with a younger sibling of ours. And so because of that, they had gone and they, they wanted to see if there was a correlation between the way I was born, her having a miscarriage. And so then they had me go talk to a couple of doctors and they just talked to me a little bit about why you think this happened or why they think this happened. And they had what they referred to me and the words they used is we have some theories on how it happened. You know, the umbilical cord could have wrapped around and cut off the, the growth mm. of it. It could have just been because I'm a twin. It could have been that uh -huh. in the, you know, in the embryo, we just, we didn't get developed fully as we were growing up and my arm got stuck where I didn't get to fully develop it. Oh, okay. And so there, that was another theory that they had because my sister came out all 10 fingers on all 10 toes. So there was no issue there. And growing up, did it ever affect you, you know, um, in your childhood? Yeah, I hated that I could never do the stinking monkey bars. Like, that's the one thing in <laughs> You don't my want to life. be like American Ninja Warrior and, no, you know, like that it was a thing back then. No, but. I was a chunky little kid, so holding on, like, I could grab a bar and hold it for a few seconds, but swinging and trying to grab it, and hmm. yeah, that wasn't my thing. So, I, it was just one of those things where I'm just like, hey, this is who I am, but I, it, it was a label. Like, hmm. I, there are some things I went through as a kid that most kids don't have to go through, um like what just uh, stereo not stereotypes i guess name calling bullying like everyone goes to sure. some level I mean, but kids just don't have a filter yeah. and they sometimes don't there's obviously not a sense of maturity during grade no. school and i mean at one time there was a, a situation at our school this is when i was in elementary school that i remember i had to there was a kid so terrified of me how different i looked he couldn't even be in the same room hmm. so they kind of did it a I don't know if assimilation is the right word, but they wanted to assimilate him to my to being around me. So they would put him in a room where it was like a glass see like a glass door, like not the door the upper half was glass and I'd be on the other side and they would just be like you can be here and I remember he'd be screaming on the other side of the room because he didn't want to even see me. Wow. And I was thinking, I don't know how in education we would allow that happen today. <laughs> at some point, that was allowed at my school. And I was thinking, how much did my parents know about this? Like, I don't remember any of that huh. now going in education, but I remember that happening. And eventually, um, he learned that I was a normal kid and yeah. it wasn't a problem. But I just remember a couple of times sitting in a room as this kid on the other side of this oh my office was screaming his head off. So that sense of um, urgency of just being, giving that extra effort to make sure people know you for you yeah, and not for the one hand guy yeah, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the nice thing about, you know, at least in church, when you wear a suit jacket, I didn't even notice 
until you hold your phone. I'm like, oh, yeah. all right. Yeah. And at first I'm like, hmm, I wonder if he was a vet or I'm sure yeah. you've gotten that a few times or yeah. whatnot. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, why did you start with, how did you start in education? What sort of sparked that interest? The, uh, interesting enough, there was, um, I, I, I went to, after graduating high school in Grandview, I went over to Western Washington University and I was going to start my bachelor's in science and mathematics. I was the running start kid, so I jumped right into my junior level courses and finished my first year there. And, you know, we get our wonderful letter from Texas Instruments recruiting us to come work for them when you finish your degree and, you know, mm. sign and we'll, we'll have a job for you. And I was like, oh, that'd be great. Starting salary of 65 bucks working on programming around mathematics for calculator software. Like, I'm all in for that. Um, but uh, my, after my first year there, I got, a, my, I got a summer job. Same summer school program I worked, you know, in 2002. The summer of 2002 started there in 99. And I was a, an aide. I wasn't the teacher, but I was an aide. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I want to teach. That experience working with those kids and it was elementary age and just interacting with them and being part of that where you're helping them become better readers, understand math. And I love math. So I was like, oh, I can help you guys get better at math and interacting yeah. and teaching and working centers with them in activities. I was like, I, th I think I want to go into education. I think this is what I need to do. Um, and so that was my first experience in that. And that's all it took. After that, I was like, I'm all in. So I ended up actually transferring to Central because Western at the time had the four plus one program, meaning that in order to get your teaching cert, you finish your BA, then you go back a fifth year, get your master's and your teaching certificate. Okay. Central, I can be done in 18 months. Why not? Like, oh, I'm going to jump on that. Transferred to Central, jumped into my coursework there, fast-tracked it, started in January of 2000, finished up in December of 2001. Um, with all my courses and student teaching and then came back started a student taught subbing and everything down back at, at Grandview and knew I was going to get a job there because I was being recruited there already and I interviewed for my first job did you like the idea school. of going back to Grandview um, I liked the idea of having a job <laughs> hmm. and I hadn't really branched out yet I you was still about, I mean Tri-Cities I mean, didn't seem appealing to you at that time no I, because I had heard them, it was hard to get a teaching job in Tri-Cities, like starting Grandview and you can get something and then make your way that way. Hmm. But the big piece about it was going back to the community that I grew up in, I can help serve. That's where I was doing, working in my summer school program. So I had connections with teachers, with community you already. already. By that yeah. So I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity for me. Interviewed for my first job and I didn't even get it. I was so disappointed in myself. I was like, how did I get this job? Hmm. But it was at the middle school. Um, didn't get that one. So then tried at the elementary school as a fifth grade teacher, literally 18, 18, 18 months, like six weeks later, a month and a half later, not a year and a half and was, was offered a job. So hmm. I was grateful and, and for that. And did you want to go into elementary ed or you didn't want to go in? I mean, I, 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 I could have done middle school or elementary to start with um it wasn't until i was i'd gotten a job working in sunnyside high school at doing a summer school program at sunnyside high that i was like oh maybe i do want to try high school someday um teaching i was coaching tennis at the high school level oh, okay. and i loved doing that so interacting and engaging with high school kids was great elementary was 
was awesome too. I mean, I love that time there. And like I tell people, like an elementary school setting, I I know that like the back of my hand because Mm. I just became so familiar with it and ingrained in it. So, so started teaching at uh, McClure Elementary in Grandview, spent three years, uh, was it three years? No, two years there, two years there. And then the, the downside with being new to teaching, sometimes change has to happen because you're at the bottom of the totem pole. So yeah. I thought I was going to be fifth grade. Uh, that's what I was hired for. My second year, I got pushed down to fourth grade. And then the next year, they were going to say, you're going to do third grade. And I was like, no, thanks. So I moved over to the neighboring school across the street where I could be fifth grade. And I finished a few years there before jumping to the middle school for eighth grade. Was that, I mean, going down a grade, was that, t- I mean, was that a downgrade to you? Or is it just preference? Preference. It was all preference. Um, I just felt more comfortable with kids in the 10 to 15-year-old range or 10 to 14-year-old range yeah. than 9 and 8 at the third grade level. I just that, It was going to be a learning curve for me, and I just didn't know how I felt about that. Yeah. Um, and I, I wanted fifth grade. I have become really com- familiar with that curriculum and that grade level standards and so forth. And I, that's what I was hired for. And I felt like I needed to go back and do that. Mm. And so the opportunity came up at the school across the street and I jumped on that, um, was there for a few years while I did my internship and then moved over and did, uh, algebra eighth grade math over at the middle school. Mm. And I did that. And then, uh, in the summer of 2008, I got a phone call interviewed in, here in Pasco at Ruth Livingston Elementary and uh, was fortunate enough to get selected as an assistant principal there. How did that happen? I mean, was it just somebody that knew you and thought, man, he'd be great in the spot? I mean, no, actually, um, I was opposite. I didn't know anyone. Actually, I ended up knowing one person by chance in the interview. I threw my name in the hat and it was just by chance that um, they had three assistant principal jobs open earlier in the year and they had very limited applicants who applied and they had encouraged the principal at the time, Susan Sparks, hey, just pick up this other one because you're not going to get anyone to apply. And Susan went ahead and said, hey, I'm going to go ahead and post it. They said no. She argued. She got it posted. She ended up having like 12 applicants. Hmm. They interviewed six of them and by chance I was selected as one of the six. And I went in and... uh, Susan told me, she's like, you blew us away. Like you blew us away. Like you were, we had like, we, nobody, we had one, there was one teacher in there who his name's uh, Macario Hernandez. He's still a teacher at Ruth Livingston, second grade. His younger brother graduated high school with me. And literally they grew up when, as a kid, like when I was in elementary school, we, we lived like across kitty corner behind each other. So oh, we really? just jumped the fence to go to each other's house and hang oh, out. That's funny. So it just happened to be he remembered who I was because, oh, that was my brother's friend growing up in elementary Crazy school. Crazy. Yeah. How but other than that, I didn't really know anyone else there. Um, I didn't know anyone else there other than that one familiar face. Yeah. And did I they, was fortunate they, enough to get selected. Huh. Did they say other, any other reasons why? Kind of what, what stood up? From the rest? Um, it really, what stood out was the passion I had about the importance of establishing a school as a family. And hmm. in that desire to, to bring that and help support that and grow that and wanting to be part of that at their setting. And I had done a little bit of homework on Livingston, probably as much as I, probably not as much as I should have. But um, 
Susan Sparks was a great mentor. I got to work with her only one year before I was, I had the opportunity to move on and try new things. Yeah. Not always by, by my choice, but by <laughs> voluntold to do yeah. things, you know? Yeah. And um, she still is the kind of the mentor voice in my head when decisions are made. And okay, I think what would Susan do, mm. which is great because she had a long, uh, successful career as a building principal. And well, I, I th- <clears throat> and I think people look at you and they think kind of like you're you're the go-to guy for a lot of things, but you still have your mentor that's helped you. That's still you know the the person in your ear. I think that I think that's really cool in that sense because it's nice to know that everybody has somebody that taught them type type of thing. You know, they're the reason why they are the way they are. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason why having this family unit inside of school is that the reason why you you change from teaching to more administrative role. Yes, actually, that in service. One of my favorite things to do is the opportunity to you know serve. And when you're in a classroom, you have this room of thirty kids that you can impact and support. And then you go to a school, and now you have a an umbrella of that you're trying to cover of X amount of kids. And my my opportunity at Livingston to work with Susan, we had eight hundred and twenty kids there. I went over to Whittier later, uh, a few years later as the principal there, and I had over 800 kids, like 810, 815. Then I went to McClintock, had the opportunity to open that building, started at 650. By the time I left, um, we were 880 and 850 my last couple years there. So a big umbrella and a lot more um, opportunity to engage and make kids feel like they're part of something and that they're heard. And they have a voice and that they're valued. Um, And that's really kind of what we want to do. And that's now what my task is at my new high school, which happens to be my new job, the Chihuahua High School, which happens to be the largest high school in the state of Washington. That's crazy. How is it? Why is it so big? It's just exponential growth in the community. Are they they looking to expand to another high school? They are. Actually, the bond passed. Uh, We were fortunate enough to have Pasco community vote and approve a bond just back on valentine's day so we're gonna break ground here this in the next few weeks on high school number three which is actually gonna be up here just a little bit north of of mcclintock off 60 and burns okay in that corner um and that's the high school three it opened the fall of 25 so and then we're also opening with the bond they also uh, approved a small innovative high school so think of like a a delta Mm -hmm. but delta is set up that serves all three communities. Right, right. This one will be a Pasco only and a little bit larger, so it'll, it'll host you know up to six hundred kids in, a, in a, a school setting that's really designed for kids who are looking at specific career or college ready without a lot of the extracurricular pieces. Like my focus coming in is internship and trying to get apprenticeship and things like that in a, mm. in a CTE field or a health and human services field. Okay, versus a comprehensive high school because I'm not interested in doing music or um, robotics or you know anything like that. Those kind of elective courses. And are you gonna are you gonna play a, a role in in setting up those new high schools and getting that started? I'll work with the planning principal. Um, Raquel Martinez was selected as planning principal, and I'll work with her a lot hand in hand. And so will Jake Stickle, the principal at Pasco High, because we really want to set up a system where. When that school opens, our staff coming from Chihuahua and the staff coming from Pasco, I know what they're going into. Yeah. So it's not a whole new 
a whole new world for them. There's some right. continuity for them. So we'll work over the next couple of years in that process. Well, I, I think that's what's that's what's exciting is that that being in a position to be able to help. And I think what's really cool about your position is that I think you use that those leadership skills both at a school setting and a church setting. What do you think are are some of those lessons you've learned when you as maybe when you started at Chihuahua or started in the administrative roles at school in the school district and and what are some things that you've you started to change the way you thought about um, leadership or what leadership is or how that influences you not only as an administrator but as a father that's kind of a loaded question but yeah. I think you get where I'm getting at yeah I think a lot of it is um, for me being able to really listen to what people are saying and be attentive and then honoring what they're saying and making sure that you follow up with them and hearing what they're saying um, and trying to recognize that so you can catch where they're coming from and then being respectful of the different experiences they've had that have led them to that, where they're at and their perspective and how they feel. Um, because environment plays a lot, of, a huge factor in people's lives, right? And what they do and experience. And so I, I think about that in in the sense of how can I, not only how can I better serve, but how can I better help support um, the system in general? You mm. know, so when I think of the church in the church and my calling, like I'm more of an operational thinker. Yeah. So I start asking a lot of questions, and I feel bad sometimes. I'm sure Bishop probably thinking, <laughs> "Dude, be quiet." Um, but I will tend to do that. Ask questions when something comes up, and I think in in a couple of ward council maybe you yeah. participate I, I start I asking questions and I i'm like i don't i hate to be the that person in the room but i just i want everything like structure is one of my things so i want to make sure everything's running right. smoothly so it's a good experience well you you i remember the couple ward councils i sat in that was something i appreciated the most was because there was definitely this this uh, whirlwind of, of thoughts and ideas and they were they were good it was good to get them out there mm-hmm. But I liked how you grounded it. You grounded it to a system that can be uh, developed and more checked on that versus checking on the person. Yeah. Now, when you were teaching, it was about the kids and the students. Mm-hmm. When you're in this position, it's the same thing, but it doesn't look the same way. It's not like you're going one-on-one with each child, especially at six, yeah. 800 or how many students are in Tijuana High School? Uh, 3,200. Okay, 3,200. It's not like you're going to get a one-on-one relationship with all of them. Yeah. So how does that shift and change? It's really about supporting your teachers and the other staff that are engaging with kids on a daily basis and looking at pockets of systems. You know, I in my, in my world of education, I live in what I refer to as four domains. <clears throat> leadership systems culture and instruction so really kind of mm-hmm. honing in on what are those four teams looking at and how do we develop those four teams to be what are going to lead the work within the school and it's funny because i'm sitting here talking with my hands and so people are going to see no, that i'm, I'm but seeing I'm, I'm at least always, i'm enjoying yeah, it <laughs> that's what i always do and um so you know looking at leadership what do we need to establish to ensure there's a vision right like yeah. what's that focus going to be when we look at culture what are we going to allow what are the behaviors we're going to allow what are we going to do and that's probably one of the hardest ones because we're we had restrictions coming back from covid right so we enforced certain things and we let other things slide and now we have to go back and kind of be like hey guys <laughs> i you know, think every so, school is struggling with yeah that. <laughs> so it's like well we can't really do that and like one of the biggest pieces now that the weather's warming up with high school kids is oh let's have a conversation about the dress code and we got yeah. a bunch of kids saying, hey, don't worry about what I'm wearing. Worry about who I am. And so how do we balance that? 
And so that's the work in that culture piece. We talk about instruction. What are those best practices to ensure our students are being successful? When I look at the data as we've dived in, Chihuahua has been successful in what they've done, but it's been pretty stagnant over the last probably near 10 years. And I mean, stagnant I, in what way? Um, graduation rates have been steady, right about 85 to 87%. Okay. I mean, and there's new things they've incorporated in the school, new initiatives to capture more kids over that course of the last 10 years. But our graduation state rate still stays right at that 80, 85 to 87%. Like there's no big influx or change. And right. if you want a systematic change that's going to be systemic to last and impact, you've got to see growth somewhere. We look at the the proficiency, I'll say, what the state uses as evaluation right. for us is proficiency in, in tests. And those have been pretty stagnant and in different populations. So like, okay, what support are we providing to our lower income families or our students who have disabilities? Because they've been pretty plateau in their performance as well. Yeah. So just beginning to look at what we can do to make that change that's that instructional side because we've got to be innovative in what we're doing because we have to find a way to engage students more because we're competing every day with the device that has everything at the palm of their hand. Yeah. So instantaneous that's, gratification, that's instantaneous tough, information. And so one thing, of the yeah. things that we have to look at is what's the priority that we have to engage our, our high school kids and what they need to know. They need to know how to critically think. They need to know how to communicate clearly. They need to know how to problem solve. They need to know how to advocate for themselves, right? They need to know how to collaborate and work with others. We don't need to worry about them memorizing what the important dates of the Renaissance era were. <laughs> we don't need to worry about the important uh, historical events. Why? Because Google can tell me that. If Google can answer it, that's not what our focus should be. You know, I, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because I, I've heard a lot about well, I don't use this, you know, what am I, <clears throat> why am I learning this? You know, why am I learning this, you know, algebra equation? When mm -hmm. am I going to use this in the real world? And, uh, you know, prerequisites before I had to apply for physical therapy school, mm -hmm. which is a graduate school, uh, was chemistry and physics. And no, I wasn't going to be in medicine. But something I did learn and somebody explained this to me was just the ability to problem solve when something's not a straightforward solution that you can't necessarily use Google Maybe you can use AI now, but <laughs> then that's another beast for another time. Yes. But, but, right, it wasn't a straightforward answer, and it made me realize, and looking back on it now, yeah, that makes sense. And although it's frustrating, mm -hmm. is a lot of principles applied. And I, I, I guess it's refreshing hearing that, that, that from the from the top down, that's what's trying to be pushed. Yeah. And that. And yeah, I mean, I think, do you see that there's much more of an uproar of being outspoken about, you know, Kids saying, you know, it's more about me, no me, versus, you know, what I'm wearing and things like that. Or do you feel like that's kind of always been there? Because I, I, I feel like it's always been there, but do you think it's uh, more so now? I think it's more so now. Um, and I think a lot of that just has to do with the, the change in society. Right. And the, the promotion of individualism and being who you are and what you want to be. And, and we should, no matter what, respect that. So I think there's kind of an entitlement piece that goes with that. Right. So that's something we navigate because we do want our students to feel like they can be themselves and feel like it's a safe place to be themselves. Mm. But we've also got to have parameters. You can't just because you want to be who you are and you don't want to do this today doesn't mean you can do whatever you want or do nothing. Yeah. You still you're, you still have a responsibility of coming to school, following rules, 
and obliging it and obliging by those rules and 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 interacting with others in a respectful manner. Yeah. And we have, I mean, one of the things, 95% of our kids make right, the right choice every day. In fact, I could probably even make it smaller because based on the number of students that we really target to support who you could say are repeat offenders for behavior or attendance issues, are, are it's probably 3.5%. So when you look at that, the other 96.5% of our students are making the right choice every day. And it's a huge number when you have a school of 3,000 plus. Uh, yeah. yes. so. and, and I think, especially in the city of Pasco, mm-hmm. large Latino community, and there's definitely a whole other culture to that. Um, and that's when one of the, I guess one of the frustrations we've had is the struggle of trying to connect with that community because the majority of our students who are Latino who come to Chihuahua live 25 minutes from the school. Hmm. And that's frustrating for them because they don't feel like they're part of the school. Yeah. So how do we, how do we overcome? That's a barrier of ours. So we got to figure out a way to break down that barrier um, to enable, to make them feel like it's that it's their school because right now it doesn't, they don't feel like it's their school. And even today, I had an opportunity to engage with a group of about 22 kids in a class that I was covering because we just had a little crazy day and I needed to cover a class. And just getting them to engage was very difficult because they were like, I I don't feel like I'm part of the school. Yeah. And And so disengagement goes up. Yeah. And um, it's funny how you bring these up because I think a lot of those principles of engagement, feeling part of community, family... I don't think it's any different to applying at a ward or at a family level. What do you think are some of those principles that can be applied that parents can use uh, that you're seeing and trying to implement versus implementing in the home? How how is that? What are some ways you think that uh, principles that can can be brought up in that sense? Um, Really a conversation with your kid every day. One of the things that historically growing up, in, I mean, my parents were a little bit different. They weren't a stereotypical Latino family growing up, um, just because of the way that my parents talked with us. Hmm. Um, but I knew a lot of families growing up and friends of mine that the parents talked to them. Yeah. And so there's a difference talking to your kid and talking with your kid. Yeah. And that's the key piece is talking with your kid. And so we, I don't always do the, I try, but I don't always do the best job about having the conversation with my kid. So when I ask them how their day was and they say, I say, how was your day? Oh, fine. Why was it fine? Tell me about your math class today. Tell me about, you know, engaging with them more and having that conversation about what they learned, what happened, mm. you know, tell me about what you did at lunch. Who did you talk to at lunch? Did you talk to anyone? And just try to get to know their daily, what they do and what they engage in. Like I said, I go through, my wife and I, she probably does a better job of talking with them than I do. I know she does. I shouldn't say she probably does. I know she does. <laughs> but I'll go in kind of peaks and valleys in, in my engagement with them. And sometimes I've, I have to remember to balance taking dad, putting dad hat on and taking principal hat off mm. when I have the conversation. Cause I imagine so. I can get a little rough with them on on that school side sometimes. Well, growing up, I, I grew up in a similar environment, environment uh, kind of like your kids. So my mom, 
was a teacher and mm-hmm. then she became a counselor and she went from school to school and she's a head counselor at a oh man she's gonna listen to this and she's gonna say dan why don't you remember <laughs> <laughs> uh i don't want to say it's like a stem school but it's a it's a school similar to that the idea is that there's a tr- there's a mm, apprenticeship college like much more driven. like a magnet type of yes. charter type yes yes Thank you. She, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to ask her after this. Anyhow, and, and so she, she works in more uh, in that sense. And, and and so growing up, it was a lot about systems. I I struggled academically all my life. And, you know, my mom was concerned. My teachers were very concerned. And when you talk about engaging, you talk about making systems. I grew up with, with that type of thing. And that's what kept me grounded. And even to today, if I ever have a day where I may not have anything, quote unquote, planned, I do horrible because if I don't develop a system for myself, I don't get anything done. Mm-hmm. And I think, oh, I'm going to have the whole day to get something done and I get squat done. <laughs> and, and and so when you talk about that, I think it's refreshing to, to bring those up because that's what I grew up with and that's mm-hmm. what's helped me to become as productive as I've, I've been. Mm-hmm. And talking about engaging, I mean, uh, my dad, or stepdad, but I really consider my dad, I mean, mm-hmm. he's from El Salvador. And so he grew up a certain way. My mom grew up, um, you know, a certain way. And having them together and having a, you, you know, a mixed family, it was, it was, looking back, it's fun to see how that shaped how we, we are now. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about engaging with your kids, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm the same way. It's like a hit and miss. Sometimes I'm on, I'm on point and I feel like I'm really um, putting the investments in my, in my kids and just by spending time. Mm-hmm. Versus other times where maybe not as much. Yeah. But I, I think out of out of all of that leadership sense, where do you feel like uh, being sort of that principal has made you a better father or vice versa? How do you feel like it's those two roles as a dad, as a father, and as a principal and all those roles you've had, um, how do you feel like they influenced each other? Really... Um hand in hand looking at the whole child and recognizing that everyone's different. And I think being a principal has allowed me to be more intentional of seeing the individuality of my children. Hmm. Um, And not that it was a problem, but being able to just recognize that and identify strengths that they have and an understanding of they have. So like, you know, my wife says, it's just my oldest, um, she was kind of, obsessed with volcanoes at one time and she was really into that and then it was you know this thing and then this thing and she's like why did she do that well sometimes when you have kids who are a little more gifted in certain aspects of what they do they will become kind of infatuated with one thing and focus on that for a set period of time and really become in-depth and knowledgeable at it because they make connections everything connects to it and that's how the neurons are firing in their brain and so forth yeah and then the understanding of how kids are wired differently. We, I remember going to a, 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 a workshop as a principal with uh, Dr. John Medina, and he kind of threw out images of MRI images of brains from 75, 95, and then uh, 2005. Hmm. And you could see how they were like the same demographic household part of the country and everything, but you could see the, the brain was, spots were different on, on the brain. And you talk about kids are wired different today. And I remember sitting down with um, my son, Tyler, my, old, my youngest, when he was just a baby in 
Sun, and it was in Sunday school in the chapel. And I think it was the old school iPhone 7. So this was like, <laughs> maybe it was iPhone 4, actually. It must be, I, it's iPhone 7. It was iPhone 4 because it was like 2011 or 12 or something like that. And I remember, like, I he had never really had my phone or seen my phone. I mean, the kid wasn't even in, he must have been, what, 13 months? Because he wasn't, he was with me. He wasn't in nursery yet. Right. And I remember he's kind of fidgety and I just gave him my phone and he was looking at it. I remember just him... The old iPhone, you could see the little scrolling thing across. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, the, across the board there, and I remember him watching him just go down, and he just put his thumb down and slid across and unlocked my phone, and I was like, he'd, he'd never seen me do that. Like, yeah. Like intuitively, he just knew that that little light going across, I need to follow that, hmm. and that's how kids are wired different. They just are. They're wired digitally more. And that's why people are like, how are they, How come they're so obsessed? And it's the environment. Like the environmental Very factor so. yes. is, the, is the largest influencer yes. on It's what dictates child. how you develop. Yes. Very much so. And so this is a digital age. And now we're, you know, we talk about artificial intelligence and, you know, you have these different AI features that are coming out. It's going to even... It's just going to keep going. It's going to keep going. Exponentially, yes. too. And so... Being able to recognize that and see that um, and get an understanding of, okay, this experience as a building leader, I can make connections now to some of the characteristics of my kids. And I can take some of those characteristics and now make connections with kids in the school and what they may need and how they may function and so forth. And like, that's just the part that I, I learn about and I see and I'm like, okay, so it, it just opens, opens up the, for me, opens up the window to see the whole child in hmm. both realms and get a better understanding and, and who they are and their individuality and what their strengths are and so forth. And I think we do that with our own kids, but I think being able to do that with my own kids and com- and see it in other kids and see similarities has been has been beneficial for me. Well, and I think for anybody to take that in can appreciate any child, mm-hmm. no matter what stage they're in life, Yeah, you can appreciate that more. Because I think looking back, and I've mentioned this before, the, the times I just, I stopped with expectations and replace it with appreciation with what my children were doing or whatnot. That's when that love was more of those was open. Those gates were opened Mm -hmm. and I could just appreciate that. And I was a lot happier then. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Cause kids, they're they're the most forgiving people. Mm -hmm. They will, they'll forgive you for any mistake you make. And I rely on that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, this has been amazing, and I think you've spoke a lot of my language in that, and I think a lot of people can appreciate just hearing your insights. Now, every episode, I always wrap up with asking one last question, and that is, how do you find Christ in everyday life? In the small things, the little acts of service, little acts of love that people give, show, if I'm the one providing that, or if someone's providing that to me, um, patience, anything like that. To me, I, I look for that opportunity of Christ. When you see someone walking down the hall in a large high school in the state of Washington, you've got two kids who don't know each other and they one gets bumped by somebody or they bump into each other and they help each other out and then they go their separate ways and they're like, oh, sorry. That's, I mean, no one was a jerk about it. Hmm. It's honest, like, hey. My bad. 
my bad. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing that like the stereotypical thing you see in high school and in movies is not the high school that we have here. And I just, I, it blows my mind. And a lot of that I think attributes just to the standards that our, our kids across the community are held to regardless. And we have a great influence of service-minded youth that go to high school at Chihuahua and at Pasco High that are members of the church or active in other churches. And we have, you know, and they get together in different organizations, even at the school setting. Um, you know, there's a, a cohort called the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and they do that same thing. Their standards are, hey, we're going to put God first in our life because that's what they want to do. And some of our, our, our youth that are part of our ward or part of the church engage with those kids also and are very respectful. And I think that just being able to be examples to others and, and showing a way to serve and being that way and engaging with people in a way that shows how would the Savior engage with you? How would he interact with any single person with love, with compassion, with kindness and forgiveness if we make mistakes? And that's what I've been grateful for. I've been grateful for the opportunity going back full circle to the question, right? How did, how did I know it was true? Because I, I felt the burning in the bosom when I read the Book of Mormon for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I got confirmation in Alma 527. It references, you know, could you, could you be ready if your time had come? You know, that yeah. it references, you know, are your garments clean? And mine weren't. And I wanted them to be. I wanted to be a better person and I wanted to be somebody who could be, make it a positive impact on others and make a difference and in the sense of being a kind and loving and compassionate to others and serving in some capacity. And I'm fortunate enough that, you know, I've got a wonderful family, my kids and my wife, very supportive and a great ward that we've been in that's been very supportive. And that's how people are. They're just in general that way. And when I see that, I see Christ and I see it in in those those small things every day. I think that's really cool. That's very insightful. Thanks again for all your insights yeah. and opening up. I know this is going to be a great episode. So, all right. Well, thank you. Your, yeah, appreciate it. <laughs> and there it is, another episode. I'm glad you guys were able to tune in for that. At this point, I'm getting a lot of good feedback, and I really appreciate that. And really, it's because of the recommendations I'm getting so don't hesitate if you think I should interview somebody else I'm going to get to everybody at some point again reach out if you have anybody you know and I'm excited for y'all to tune in for the next one